Hey, welcome back to Mrs. Maisel Paul. I'm your host, Kevin. How you doing? How you feeling? Yeah, you feeling good? Feeling strong? I am, as I present this episode to you, enjoying all your emails at all hours of the day and night when I read them. Yeah, it's a joy and it's a little overwhelming. So thank you all very, very much. If there's any new questions, comments, what have you about today's episode, for example, or any future uh, episode we've not broken down yet for you that you want to know about, have a question about, anyone who worked on the show, my Mrs. Maislepod at gmail.com. That's the email address. Please be involved, stay involved. All right, so today I'm going to discuss Season 2, Episode 4 with the great Saul Rubinick, one of the all-time great character actors. Loved him so very, very long. He plays, of course, Polly, who runs the Steiner Resort, and we talk all about it and at great detail and length. This is a studied actor and uh, with a storied career, and we discuss all sorts of things. So sit back, relax, or... Maybe you're on the treadmill. Keep that pace up. Here now, Mr. Saul Rubinek. Oh, Saul. Hello. Hello, dear friend. Hi. Thank you so much for uh, slicing out some time for us today. Oh, I'm happy to do it. I asked you to take a look-see again because I'm certain it's been a number of years since you saw this episode <laughs> of We're Headed to Catskills. And so my first sort of question is, I'm always interested in origin story. So your origin story in terms of, A, did you have any previous experience in the Catskills as a person? Yeah, well, I'm trying to remember because I probably was eight or nine, you know, 316 years ago. And I, I know my, so we lived in Ottawa. My parents were Holocaust survivors and came over with me when I was nine months old. They were in their late twenties and eventually, and my dad was in the theater in Europe. Mm. And so he liked to perform. So what was really cool about this, as I recall, I must've been eight or nine years old and my mom and dad had basically, you know, lower working class income. And so they were looking always for cheap places to go in the fifties. And they, and so in the 1950s, my parents had a bunch of, you know, Yiddish speaking friends from Montreal and a few probably from the Bronx who said, you know, what's cheap, not the big one, not the big ones. You don't go to the big ones. There's some little ones, you know, they're like motels. They're not there. You, if you want to go, if you want to go dancing and you want the comic, you could pay for a night and go to the big one. All right, you drive, don't take the valet parking, and then and 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 then you could enjoy that. Otherwise, yeah. stay in the motel. So it was a motel in wow. the Catskills, wow. and where there was a big lawn and the kids all played, and it was like probably fifty bucks for the summer. And yeah. if they wanted some entertainment, they would splurge and they would go to whatever they were called, those big, the Concord or whatever they were called. Yeah. And so I do remember, but what my dad, yeah, grossinger. So my dad, of course, couldn't perform there, but in a motel world. Sure. Yeah. Oh my, he could tell Mises, he could pretend to do Shalom Aleichem, he could do, you know, who's the Yiddish Mark Twain, and and he would do his version of Tevya before the movie. Uh-huh. Before sure, the movie, sure. Just, just reading, reading Tevya. So I do recall my dad is a performer in the Catskills. So when this uh, offer came to me, would, how would you like to be the the guy who runs the entertainment and uh, runs the Catskills? I mean, I was like, sure, I've been here before. I think, you know, I, yeah, yeah. That's how it. That's the origin story. And then we, of course, traveled to not the Catskills, but um, no, the Steiner Family Resort. Interestingly, yeah, Northern New York, right? We were. Somewhere. Well, it was a good three plus hours from Manhattan. Yeah. We yeah, I remember the drive. Yeah. Yeah. Prescott, New York, I think is the town, which historically, I'm told, is where Rod Serling is from. Really? A little trivia for you. How about this trivia? Kevin Pollack and Saul Rubinek hadn't seen each other in 20 uh, years. And the last time that we'd met, the first time we'd met, and the last time we had met was with my mom. Why was that? Saying on the set of Avalon. That's correct. Yeah, that was was, 1989. All right. So that was the last time we'd seen each other. And basically, all was going on in my mind when I met is why him? Well, what am I, Uh, Chuck (laughs) Lorre? Yeah. Well, yeah, sure. (laughs) Anyway, we hadn't met in a long, long time. Yeah. 
I yeah, I find that impossible that we hadn't seen each other again because we share Matt Craven, we share a few uh, right. mutual friends. Yeah, it just hadn't happened. Yeah, it just hadn't happened. So that was really a fun reunion talking about my mom, yeah. who then went on to do another of Barry Levinson's movies. But my mom was not an actor. I mean, my dad was the actor in the family, but yeah, it was your uh, mom kept uh, booking. Kept booking. What can I say? Anyway, back to Maisel. I was, you know what it's like. You've done this before, where you end up in a guest situation in other people's world. Sure. And I had seen the show, and your job as an actor is to sense the tone and the atmosphere and to fit in yeah you know which doesn't always happen you and i both see actors come into a situation and go they 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 own the place for some reason and they everybody wants to wants them gone as soon as possible because they're not part of the team but in our situation for me i was just in heaven because first of all amy and dan were so welcoming the whole cast is welcoming and also you've got a cast that's in a hit show and they not are not acting like it i've been a guest on hit shows where everybody wears their Emmys strapped to their forehead. That's not fun. That's <laughs> yeah. not a lot of fun. Yeah. This was a very humble group of people who were just having a really good time and grateful. knowing all and grateful and all yeah. knowing that they were in something special, which I'm sure even in your last season, you know that, yeah. which is partly I'm sure why you're celebrating this. So I felt very grateful. I had nothing but fun. And I really only did think three or four scenes, but I really felt I was made to feel like part of the family. Oh, we loved you so much. You came back later, last year. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Season four. I, I, had a, I had a really good time. And it was it was also unusual. It's just an unusual set. You've been around for as many years as I have. And you know almost as many. And you know what it's like when you're... It's an unusual thing. I wish it happened more often. I mean, it, it's just a, a lightning in a bottle. The scripts, yeah. the cast... And then the reception, because you and I have both been in things that we've loved, that we know are great, that wasn't received well for whatever reason. And everything happened, uh, the confluence of things happened at the same time. It's truly lightning in a bottle. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things you do, you can't plan for it. You couldn't have no. planned that all those years of Gilmore Girls would have prepared these people to do a show like this, yeah. uh, or that the time was right for Rachel to star in this show yeah. and for it to be a world about what women were going through in that period, unlike which there was a show already like that, but starring men. And that was Mad Men. Sure. And it did it did deal with that, but not like this. No, right. nothing had dealt with it this way. And it was Amy yeah. and Dan's background that led it. So I was very happy to just be a small part of it. Yeah. Yeah. And I glad you felt what I thought was going on, which was how much love there was for you when you arrived and you were embraced oh, yeah. by, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we were and remain extraordinarily grateful, but also a sense of, even in Rachel's case, a sense of we've all been at this a while and we know how important it is to share the love and the gratitude and the the warmth with people like yourself who also had been around long enough to have earned a place at the table to shine however you wish to. Because I, I recall you felt like anyways, there was, while having to treat it like a piece of theater in terms of don't change a syllable, mm. you were given all the, the trust from the creators and director to bring your essence and, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember speaking to Michael Zagan, when I first met him and said, you know, what a wonderful opportunity for you. You're so wonderful in this. It's great. Uh, uh, you know, and he said, you know, I really thought I screwed it up and uh, the audition. Right. And yeah. I, I really had it. Uh, it was just, I, they brought me back to read with Rachel and something magic happened. And, and I said, yeah, it sometimes happens like that in our life, in our business, is that one day in the morning, you're, you're chopped liver and in the afternoon, you suddenly you know, you're, you're set in a diamond ring and, <laughs> so it, and it just, it, it happens. Uh, your life can change overnight. And I think no matter how old you are, the, we, as actors, the kind of gypsies that we are, we always imagine that tomorrow, you know, the sun will come out. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You nailed it. Now, Jamie, my better half created a little uh, scene breakdown. So we, we, we can go through the scenes together, which is nice. But when I say you were given the sort of freedom while not changing a syllable to bring whatever energy and creation you wanted to, to Polly, the character of Polly, 
I am curious about your memory of working because Dan Palladino directed this episode, episode four, season two. Yeah, there was a, I think I was brought on to do two episodes. So, uh, yes, because I appeared mostly in one, this one. And mm-hmm. then there was right. other stuff that was going on. And I, uh, what I, what I remember, first of all, is meeting people for the first time. You know, I'd never met Rachel. I mean, I, Tony and I had missed each other throughout our entire careers and hadn't yeah. met. We met in the hotel and, and you and I hadn't seen each other in 20 years. And so what happened was uh, that was really a fun thing. And it was also everybody was away from New York. Everybody was kind of in their in summer camp in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So the atmosphere was was loving. So now I would describe the atmosphere. At this point in my career, I have a feeling you're going to be you're you're probably have a very similar experience. Is that when you know your cast right, you really you just you got to show up and you got to just be there and be present. I had nothing planned. I hadn't planned anything for this character. I had no preconceptions in my head until I looked at the costume. Uh, they asked me to shave. And and I just put myself like a little kid back in the 1950s into the Catskills. And I, okay, I'm welcoming. I mean, it was really as an acting exercise in a situation like that where things are, you know, when you're, when you're welcomed and you're in a hit show and you like the show, that's a hit show, which is not always the case for hit shows and you like the people. Yeah. Then really, it's falling off a log, and you just got to be able to fall off that log. You got to not be so rigid on that log that you're not going to fall off it, yeah. and you got to be able to go with the way the wind is blowing and whatever happens. And I was given permission, and I gave myself permission after all these years to let myself just be easy. So honestly, Kevin, I, my memory of it is less about the work, yeah. which was like when I look at a show like that, and the same thing happens to me when I look at Frasier. Of the two years I spent on Frasier, I go, oh, wait a minute, I'm in that show? And yeah. it was like, it was so easy. Yeah, There was so little work involved yeah. that I go, I'm watching Polly. I'm not really remembering what maybe you'd like me to remember, which is some of the mechanics of the actual work. I don't really remember. Looking at the episodes, I go, oh, my God, right. She was divorced. He couldn't have her. She, you know, go up for that award because she's divorced and that all. But I didn't really have any specific memories about it. Yeah. All I recall is, I do recall one thing, which is that the shooting style was uh, the kind of shooting style I love, which is more like theater. So yeah. you're doing long, long masters and you need stage actors to do it. If you don't have stage actors doing it, then there's a problem. Because <laughs> actors who are used to film, you know, will do two minutes at a time and then go, next you know and want to go back to their trailers or they just learn to save it for coverage don't give it all away in the master because the master is the beginning and the end of the scene in terms of editing choices and right yeah i was not a theater actor i don't know if you knew that or i didn't know that i think most people assume i'm assuming i assumed you've done well wait you are a theater actor no you in this way in this way in the way that you have spent a great deal of your early life in front of live audiences. Well, that was the thing. I was spoiled working in one. And as a comedian, stand-up, you're the editor, the writer, the choreographer, the producer, the, the director, the performer. It's like a boxer. You've got people in your corner, but when you step in the ring, it's all your instincts. You get all the blame and all the accolades. And so when theater eventually came around, once I got a little recognition from film, my reaction was... Why would I share the stage with all these other people? <laughs> I, 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 you know, because I just wasn't, I didn't come up in that world. So I didn't have what so many of you great stage actors have, which is it stays in you and you have to get back to it the way that I feel a need to get back to stand up when I miss it and so on. Yeah. So you've never done a play? Well, I did a, of course, I did Godspell in high school, senior year, you know. No, no, I, I mean, as a professional, you've never oh, no. done. Oh, no. No, you I wouldn't did a consider- stage, I did a stage reading of a two-hander, but that was that. It was, you know, five days of rehearsal and a, holding the scripts, a stage reading with a little bit of blocking. And I enjoyed that 
Well, you're telling a joke. Your, your joke is that why would I share this stage with other people? And that's funny, even if it's kind of joking on the square, which it no, is. Well, I, some- listen, I would enjoy the camaraderie. Here's here's the thing. Every production, I, I was offered a couple of big shows, and it was a nine-month commitment. And so oh. knowing myself, the first three months is the greatest experience I'll ever have in my entire life. The middle three months is I can get through this. And the last three months, I have a gun in my mouth every night back <laughs> before, I, before I go on. Sh- and so I just... It's always and also you can go broke doing nine months at this point in my life. So, yeah, that's to boil it all the way down beyond my own personal creative needs. Even if I'm doing the same bits, I'm not doing eight shows a week as a stand up. And even if I'm doing the same bits, I still have the freedom. Somebody drops a tray of drinks. I'm going to do five minutes on it. I'm not thrown when somebody's phone goes off in the the theater. We're going to have a couple of minutes with that. Mm -hmm. I get to say what the audience is thinking about that idiot. So those Mm -hmm. uh, living in the moment, the way a stage actor lives in the moment when a play is alive on stage for real and is actually a living thing. I just got all of it from. And so I get it. So never offer Kevin more work than three (laughs) months on stage and you'll be fine. You were very kind to offer me a play, and I do still regret just the opportunity of us to exercise those muscles and and that joy and fun. So, yeah, I'm good for a five-week run. So whenever you have (laughs) – talk about really not making money. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's a weird – it's a weird, weird, weird thing to come from a different onstage live joy. And it's my first love, you know. Well, all right, so you don't have – even five weeks, you basically have two hours in Maisel where you experience that. And you have a two-hour master that you spent two hours on. It's maybe going to last four minutes or six minutes, and you're going to spend an hour or two hours on it. So I wasn't prepared for that at all, by the way, as you can imagine. No, I don't. And you're right in the sense that that's for theater actors. When I first got to my first Palladino, Amy Sherman, eight-page one-er, and I was told ahead of time after the table read and the party and the thing, when the second episode, because the pilot was the first, my first episode, you know, I was really warned. You you got to know these eight page wonders and treat it like a piece of theater. And my better half, Jamie, said, I, I've never seen you work this hard ever. Because, yes, as you said, I was a spoiled film camera actor who did a couple of minutes and didn't waste it in the master and waited for coverage and knew how to play mm-hmm to the actor's left eye closest to the lens. And, you know, I know I can teach that in the class till I pass out, but a page one or what are you talking about? So what happened? Well, also, as I would tell people in films. So if you could mental is 30 years old this year and that was 92. So I guess Avalon would be three years before that. And in a film like that, or many after, you know, if there's an eight page scene at the top of the scene, my character says, to the star of the movie. So what do you think we should do? And then that person talks for eight pages. And at the end, I say, all right, let's go. <laughs> so that's that's what an eight-page wonder was to me. I was very comfortable in, in right. the Captain Exposition. Right. Sitting opposite. Right. So yeah. So I worked my ass off and treated it like, indeed, a piece of theater and was... What was new- that first scene? What was that first scene? The first one, oh, do you remember? Oh, oh, gosh. Yes. It was the family dinner in episode two and it's arguably some of the best work i've ever done i mean i can objectively wow. look at it and say wow i really did work hard and they really but it are doesn't brilliant. show <laughs> your hard work doesn't show the effort is the doesn't point show. right the effort yeah. doesn't show and what yeah. happens is that a family in a situation like that and the reason i remember those winners. And when I got to direct for the first time, direct a movie 25 years ago, I was determined that in a world where spaceships are just can destroy the White House, in a world where that's possible on film, the only magic left was actors in a scene without a cut and creating magic right in front of your eyes without any manipulation, that magic. And I was determined to continue that because I don't know if you're just to go off this subject about comedy for a second. Sure. You probably have been in this exact situation that I have since you're an expert comic actor. And I pride myself on the number of comedies I do, which I think is a much harder thing to do than the, the biggest tragedies or drama in the world. And in I've been in movies and in television shows where two actors, sometimes three or four, are in a scene together. And it's magical. They're timing together. Whether they're stage actors or film actors, doesn't matter. For that moment, 
for right. that take. Then I fe- see the finished product. And in order to cut one line, or for whatever fucking reason it was, they've now cut it up into close-ups and overs and two shots and singles. And the magic is gone yep. of it. And I was determined as a director that I wasn't going to let that happen when had actors like Joe Mantegna and Sam Rockwell in a shot. I was going to let them live. If Charlie Durning is in a shot with Sam Rockwell and Joe Mantegna, I'm going to let them live as much as I can in that shot and let that magic happen. So what was really interesting about what you're just saying to me and you saying some of the best work I've ever done, because it's humbling, isn't it? Because all you were, you knew your lines and you knew that your job was to listen to the other people and to be present because you weren't really positive exactly when the camera was going to be just as the way we are when we know, okay, this over, I've got to look at his left eye. You know the technique of coverage. But in a situation like this, you really are in a play. And you just got to live it and let the camera pretend it's a documentary. The time that I saw you on Maisel, it was your entrance with the family. Uh, And it was a big single shot, as I recall. And it was everything happened at once. And it's a dance. And when you're in that situation, dancers know this really well, actually, is that when you're working with a single camera, a steady cam in that situation, and you've got seven or eight actors and extras and all these moves, you're dancing together. You're dancing with dialogue and movement and all of those things. And it's a collaborative thing. And you come out of it going, I don't remember. I don't know what happened, but it's certainly this was a lot of fun. And then when you see it, you go, well, that's some of the best work I've ever done because because you were you were just a part of a, a group. You know? That's exactly right. That's extremely well articulated, and also there's a sense of it does force you to be present and listen and be in the center of the world, and you lose connection to being able to step out of yourself and watch what's happening as you might in a chopped up. Oh, yes, in a chop covered. The other thing that to give Amy and Dan credit about this, I have also been in projects where there is winners, but it's all about the brilliance of the director and the cinematographer, and not the scene. That's right. And it didn't need to be a winner, right? And it was we spent forever, you know, creating a winner that was it was a technical, uh, yeah, technical feat. What's yeah. brilliant about what I think that Amy and Dan, I haven't heard anybody else say this in all the articles, and I'm sure it exists, but I haven't seen it and I've read a lot about Maisel because I love the show, is that the extraordinary thing that they've done is that they've given this very much the way a director does on stage to the actors. This is an unusual thing in television and film. Mostly actors on film, well, not mostly, always, actors on film and television are there for one reason, to give as much as possible to the editing room for the director and the editor. Mm -hmm. And on stage... Everything, the writer, the playwright, and the director must give everything to the actors. And the relationship that's key is the actors and the audience, not the writer with his Pulitzer Prize committee or the director with his Tony Award. It is given to the actors. Well, what Amy and Dan have created magically, we say it's lightning in a bottle, but it took many, 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 many years for them to both to create the bottle and the lightning. And it, and it was, and the magic is that they gave the show to the cast, to the central cast, and to people like me who came in for a few days, who suddenly were a part of it and looked like they're meant to be a part of it. And that, and that, that is the gift. Their, first of all, their love of actors. I mean, how many times have you been on sets where you know they don't love actors? These, this director doesn't like actors. They're in the way. They'd rather have CGI than, this, than me. You know, yeah. These people love actors. Yeah, you're saying something that really hasn't been discussed on this podcast, which of course I'm thrilled about. And um, that is something I hadn't thought about. And here we are in the middle of shooting the the fifth and final season, which I keep commenting to other actors, the sort of overview of, I can't believe how little direction Mm. we all receive from these people. And I've Mm -hmm. said a hundred times, the most Mm -hmm. direction I've received from either Amy or Dan is just pace it up. But Mm -hmm. the truth is, what you just said, and that explains why the lack of direction. We rehearse mm. a lot more than a regular show because of these winners. Mm. And when we shoot, Amy and Dan are just looking for the timing and the cadence to be correct because they've given it to the actors mm-hmm. to to bring each of their 
you know, joy and, and vision. Yeah. Yeah, that is the extraordinary thing. I've experienced that before, in diff- obviously in different ways. But I'll tell you something very unusual. Mm-hmm. This is you're going to say, how does this make sense? The only other director who's similar that I've worked with, you're going to go, what is my friend, the Gentile Clint Eastwood? What? Clint Eastwood doesn't direct actors. No. At least he didn't in Unforgiven. And from what I hear from other people who work with him, I mean, I worked with Joel and Ethan Cohen. They love actors and they do direct actors. So you can both direct actors and love them. But Clint doesn't direct actors at all. And he just, his idea is you're the person in charge of that character. You're ahead of that department of yeah. that character. And, yeah. uh, and if I, I don't know what's right. And uh, I'm sure you do. And if you do something that's confusing, I'll be sure to let you know. Yes, Amy and Dan and Clint Eastwood, okay, oddly, completely trust the cast that they've hired as much as they trust the great cinematographer that they've hired or the people that are in charge of doing some of the most extraordinary costume work in the history of television. And they trust the artists that they've brought onto the show. And the recipient of this glory is an audience that doesn't see all that work. Uh, they just enjoy the story mm-hmm. and the people. And those of you who are lucky enough to be regulars uh, on a show like that for five years are given a gift, I think, that ends up getting translated probably in the way you do a podcast, probably in the next stand-up you'll do, probably in the next role you do on a feature. Oh, the next time I direct. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is th- these gifts. You're 100% correct will serve me the rest of my life without question. I've learned, yeah. if you're smart, you learn from all these, but this one, wow, this is a masterclass for sure. Yeah, yeah. And that yeah. may be the luckiest part. Yeah, well, and thank you for all of that. Honestly, like I said, extremely well articulated. Let's talk a little bit about the episode. Hey, why not? We're here mm-hmm. and you got to watch it again. We don't spend a lot of time before we arrive at, the cat skills and one of my favorite things is when <laughs> you have to let abe know that his regular what are they called assistants cabin boys yes yeah. yes it's not no longer available yeah jimmy got that internship after all the new boys <laughs> <laughs> yes which is really hilarious to watch so beautifully written to watch <laughs> to watch how how pleased he's supposed to be but yes. how not pleased he is yeah. he knows that it's horrible to pretend that you know to show that he really is pissed off that this kid got an opportunity and that really he wants this slave back yeah. you know but that's very funny yeah and for the uneducated about what it means for a family to arrive at the catskills with money to stay at one of the nicer places back then um, is that, you know, they had a fresh scrubbed kid who was their Sleep. really executive <laughs> assistant, you know, <laughs> in modern terms, because that person is going to get take care of everything as opposed to an errand boy or whatnot. It really is. And you can just see it in not only the character of Abe's massive disappointment that he doesn't have his regular jimmy but in your focused ability to quickly help him transfer <laughs> to, to samuel the new fella eh, it's going to be pretty much the same i mean it was really sort of beautiful and and i wanted to say that because it was a joy to watch it was all in thank you it was certainly all as i i don't even recall i mean watching it i recall it all i remember is you know again going back and your and your listeners have to know it about how do you do this how do you remember your what what is the gift about acting well you know you learn your lines you don't bump into the furniture you show up and you like a kid you are the person you imagine you're the person you're playing and when things are written well mm. it's like this i spent a great deal of my life being a supporting actor. And when you're a supporting actor and you get material and you got to make a living, I've got kids who had to go to college, who had educated, and I have mortgage. A lot of my life is reading, how to put it, sow's ears and having to turn them into pearls. Mm-hmm. You know, reading, looking at garbage and going, okay, how am I, are they going to let me improvise enough to be able to turn this? It's not Barry Levinson's script. It's not a, you know, it's yeah. not Amy and Dan's script. And, very, and, you, and you have to figure out a way. And so the, a lot of your, yeah. right? A yeah. lot of your life is not, you know it right away. 
and you can see it. It's it, you, it smells right off the page, and you got the job, and you're going. No, what am I going to do? How am I going to make this work? And you look around at the atmosphere, and the director, and you go, oh, "This is going to be impossible." The studio or whatever, they want to dot every I here. They're going to cross every T. Or, or this is possible. And the trick for actors who are used to doing that, and I don't know if you've ever been in this situation. I have. As a director, my wonderful friend, Maury Chaikin, the late Maury Chaikin, I was directing a film written by Rick Cleveland starring Joe Mantegna and a very young Sam Rockwell. And Maury came on the set and started improvising right away. And I, I had to take him aside and I said, Maury, this is one of those situations in the script works, actually. The writing actually is really good. And your improvs are going to stand out as improvs. And oh, oh, because oh, we're so used to it. So mm. part of the trick here of doing a scene where I've got to quickly convince Tony's character that you've got to transition quickly here because this is not going to play otherwise. You know, we got other things that are going to work. It has to do with knowing that the writing is already great. Perfect. And there's very little for me to do. Very little. I would I, I agree with you, but I would also add again, those words are perfect. If A said correctly and B mm. somehow lifted mm. with a performance. Well, thank you. Then don't take anything away from your bringing Polly to life. Because again, the little nuances of also instantly establishing for me, the viewer, Abe and Polly have been at this a long time. <laughs> since the Weisslands have been coming up to the resort. That's right. And Polly knows before they arrived, I've got to play Abe like a Stradivarius. Otherwise, this is not going to go well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I do. And it pays off. And they paid it off two seasons later. With, of course. When you became a critic. Yeah. Beautifully paid off our relationship. In a, yeah. As I am the totally pain, betrayed. The pain and the hurt of that betrayal. Yeah, yeah. And I will have you back, please, when we get to uh, uh, season four, because that really was some exceptional stuff. Also, the way you had to very quickly inform Midge that she cannot <laughs> compete in the swim pageant because of her current situation and she is demoted to sash girl i mean the dance as you said between you and i think rose right yeah yeah rose and, and midge, midge yeah. the three of you boy oh boy was that a beautiful thing and how fun to dance with those two exceptional actors oh they're awesome and, uh, and it was quick yep we, i mean we shot that very very quick uh very quickly and it was it was just like and as you said the only thing was the joke i have about myself is that there are two things visible from space and that is the great wall of china and every acting choice i've ever made <laughs> and the only thing that i can't wait that to steal that that's really good and dan would say um great but could we mm -hmm. just take it down a little and i'd go yeah because that's all that was necessary yeah yeah you know? oh my uh, favorite thing as a director was to go up to an actor and say give me 11 percent less <laughs> not no no specifics no moments no we know when you did this none of that yeah yeah it's all in the writing and the casting and then i just yeah. need to get the fuck out of the way so yes i can yeah. say to any actor that that i've cast hey, give me 11 percent more Wh whatever yeah, yeah, yeah. you know because then they laugh at the specificity of the, of the number right why 11 <laughs> percent? yeah right and then they go have fun with it yeah yeah, yeah exactly so that was fast and easy and it's when that happens that um it's over before you know it and uh the scene plays because you're you're part of a much larger puzzle and you're thrilled i was thrilled yeah. that i could fit in because no matter how experienced you are or how well you're cast things go wrong yeah with fellow actors with the director with the cinematographer things can go wrong and i'm sure in five years there are moments where things go wrong when you're doing even a show this is that that's that's that great and all i recall is going is there any more of polly can i could how about if polly became an agent or how can i stay here you know it's one of those worlds where you go i'd like to these people are so fucking lucky uh, and they know it you know it's yeah. not like they don't know it uh and i can have contempt for their lack of understanding of how great they've got it right now they all sure. know it there's they some solace are, in that. Yeah. 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 And they all know it. And I'm going, well, I'm just lucky to have been uh, a part of it. And I felt really the same way when I got offered three episodes of Frasier that turned into two years because I auditioned for a living quite often. Sometimes, you know, I got offered stuff. And this was one of those times where it just was, it was a rare and wonderful experience. My Mrs. Maisel podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. 
So, yeah, I've dealt with sleepless nights because of uh, stress, or usually related to work, sometimes family. And after a while of this and being super groggy the next day, I felt like, yeah, maybe I should take advice of others and talk to someone, talk to a professional. And I find it extraordinarily helpful to be able to do that, to have that as an option and useful, helpful. It's absolutely worked for me. And so if your uh, thoughts keep you, let's say, racing right before bed or in place of sleep, think about talking to someone. Therapy gives you a place to talk all, a lot of this through, right? So you can stop spiraling and hopefully find some mental and emotional peace. That's the idea here. I have certainly benefited from therapy, and I know many who have. So it's easy for me to not only welcome better help into the podcast world that I'm involved in, but to sort of celebrate their sponsorship because it is so helpful. And so I would say, if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's 100% online, certainly designed to be convenient, flexible. That is, it's suited to our schedule as users. There's a brief questionnaire to be filled out to get you matched with a licensed therapist. What I also like is that you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. How about that? Because a lot of times that helps too. So for me, it helps to relieve the pressure of, oh, this has got to be the one, right? Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Maisel. But we can keep going through the episodes. I mean, doing the songs was hilarious going. Right. When we, yeah, it was great. We, I think we ended up in New York at the Steiner Studios of all things, right? Right. Steiner uh, Resort. Steiner, Steiner Studios. But what is the Steiner Studios? That we did that whole event. Yeah. Which was beautifully staged. And also there is, I have footage of a big dance. That's right. That we did, right? That was, I watched that one. Or that was an amazing. <sighs> a lot of extras yeah. choreographed. And the chore and choreography. Yeah. yeah. Really extraordinarily done. Really beautifully done. It was really a treat, man. And it's a treat to remember it with you like this, because I haven't talked about it in this kind of detail. And the truth is, while articulating it, it's not something I've spoken to even my family about or my friends about. And they said, well, it was special. I said, well, you know, it's a great show. And I had a really great time. And it was terrific to do. But just sitting here talking to you, I hadn't really thought about how Amy and Dan have been praised a lot. They won awards. So they've been praised in every way possible, including an extra four seasons per, per season. But what's really special, and the show is about this too, is about the love of performance mm -hmm. and the magic of performance and the trials and tribulations of it and their particular love for the actors that are uh, they hired is an extraordinary light that shines through the show right onto the audience. Yeah, I tell people who ask about it there's no way to screw this one up i've tried <laughs> because they've given the show over to the actors because those of us involved do have a sense of gratitude on a daily basis you know this show could have spun rachel brosnahan like a dreidel and gone right into her insecurities and she could have turned into a head case because she was handed the world mm -hmm. after the success of the first season and she wasn't even 30. Mm. Instead, she became more responsible and more of a mother hen to the rest of us. And just sincerely uh, loving mm. to everyone's needs. And yeah, that has certainly carried many a day. Because when you get a script that's 84 pages and she's speaking very quickly on 79 of them, <laughs> the rest of us can't really relate to her workload, right? So we don't have to compute the process the way she does so you add that into yeah you could step aside for a moment and go hey hey we need mm -hmm. to shine a little more love and comfort to my workload um mm -hmm. because there is a, a, a an unfair gift you've given me mm -hmm. just in terms of a time commitment and a life commitment sure. and sure. A, so all the more credit to her and she's just so insanely exceptional. I was having a conversation last night at my weekly poker game and they were because the Emmy nominations just came out again and and they were talking about her and, you know, 
And I was just saying, she's the first one to tell you, I'm not funny. I'm not a funny person. I don't think funny like the rest of you. The reason she's so good at doing the even the stand-up monologues is because they're not joke heavy. They're stream of consciousness. They're life stories. And she's just a brilliant, dramatic actress who knows how to play any character. And this is the one that she was asked to star as. And this is how good she is. It doesn't matter that she's not the funny one in life. What's interesting about that, since she's only, what, 34 now or something, is that I think that being surrounded by all of these wonderfully comic actors who do and grew up and have had many, many decades of comedy experience and whose instincts are comedic. And even though that's accurate about her, I would guess, you've watched her for five years, that now if you cast her on a great four-camera sitcom, say written by somebody brilliant, I'm not talking about the, the terrible stuff that's out there, but some great, obviously, listen, even Frasier took out jokes daily. Yeah, the writers took out jokes if they weren't character-driven. Right. But if you're, but, but their rhythm of, of four camera sitcoms is, you know, 12 seconds before the next laugh where it's got to be cut. Yeah. Should so she do a she slamming be, doors well, British I'm comedy? That she no. could do it. I'm, no, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying that it would be great for her. Of course she would do it. She could do it. But I think yeah. that what happens is she's maybe unaware of how much by osmosis yeah. she has brought into herself from the rest of you. Right. That, that I think, I think she's probably got all. Yeah. And Amy and Dan write like a couple of gag writers from the fifties in terms of the way their minds work. Yeah. Um, And also they both wrote for Roseanne and other sitcoms and they do understand beat the joke as a practice. Yeah. It's just not a joke heavy show. Weirdly. Right. That no, it wouldn't work. Uh, It wouldn't work. Kind of a joy. The Steiner Main Hall and the dinner service and the Weissman's cottage, that one arriving at their cottage scene with the carefully choreographed. I remember being there and just watching that because, you know, we shot stuff out of sequence always. And um, even though I wasn't, uh, the Maisels hadn't arrived yet at the Catskills in this episode. Man, oh, man, just the, it's like watching a mousetrap <laughs> go through all yeah. of its, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's like a little it's like the watching the inside of a clockwork, and it has all yep. of these moving parts that they, which is why I think that they decided to direct so much of it, mm-hmm. is that it's very hard to bring uh, another director in who knows how to put those pieces together and trust the actors uh, the way they do. And also, listen, you got to hand it to Amazon for giving them the time to do these episodes. You cannot create this magic. Mm on the 60 minutes worth of material without the number of days that you have to shoot it. it, yeah. it the normal amount of shooting days, which when uh, in 25 years ago was nine days uh, for an hour long show. That's it. That's what you got. Well, it's 42 minutes, but that's what you got. And nine days was a luxury. It's more seven or eight on average. I think, you know, nine right. is like, Ooh, we got be, nine. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's right. And because they were 42 minute shows, they were broken yeah. down into four acts or five acts. So a 60 minute show, okay, you're adding eight minutes. So add a percentage. So let's say the average should have been eight. You're suddenly dealing with a 15 day shoot, which is what they used to give a pilot because it yeah. had to sell the show. Now those episodes are getting that. And the shows that Netflix and Amazon, HBO Max and Disney are trusting, they're given that yeah. luxury. And the other luxury is that the showrunners are there. Yes. They're not 3,000 miles away in a writer's room trying to figure out how to break the next eight episodes. And you're suddenly on a set with a director who said, look, my orders are do it as written, fucko. Yeah. And you you can't even get them on the phone. And so you're on the set with the right people. Uh, I had a, a situation like that in my life before. And if your listeners ever want to watch Warehouse 13, which was, I spent five years doing a show with a great Jack Kenny, who was a, one of those head writers and showrunners that was on the set because he convinced NBC Universal to let his writers start early and finish all the scripts so that he could be in Toronto on the mm-hmm. set. And he's essentially a comedic showrunner, even though it was an hour long fantasy adventure show. And we improvised. Yeah. Uh, during rehearsals, we had great actors. So we improvised. He would go, we'll keep that. You can't do that if you're back 3,000 miles away in a writer's room. And so Amy and Dan are right there, right there. And if something magical happens, which I'm sure it did every episode, which wasn't intended, they'd go, keep that. That's great. Well, it wasn't the words. No one ever improvised words. 
It was but moments, right? There were moments and nuances and performance that they were driven by. Yes, mm. they were inspired by. Right. You touched earlier on the exceptional gratitude an actor feels when they're given great words. And then there's a sense of, oh, thank God I don't have to mess with this at all. I yeah. Just, I just have to know it forward and backwards. And yeah, that's mess right. It up. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to be aware that you've got great material. And that's part of the journey is that if you, if you do enough garbage, mm. you're just used to it. And you might yeah. have great stuff if somebody isn't an award-winning director. Listen, the hardest for actors is coming onto a young writer-director set that has no accolades, no hit awards, mm. no audience reaction yet, and knowing that this is great. Because yeah. I, yeah. that's very hard to do. Yeah. The show, uh, season one, had streamed and done crazy well. But while we were shooting the stuff at the Catskills, those first batch of Emmy nominations came in. Mm. Oh, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. This was season two. And season one dropped between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So we were eligible, but we were back shooting in, you know, March. And the nominations didn't come out until we were sure enough we're at the Catskills. So our very first batch of nominations. Oh, I see. Again, I didn't know that. Yeah, we had those crazy numbers and the show was a runaway hit. And back then the Golden Globes were a legitimate as much as they've ever been. Mm. So because we dropped between Thanksgiving and Christmas, the nominations for the Golden Globes came out like a week after we. Oh, how wonderful. Dropped. And we got them. And then in January, before we went back to shoot, they had the Golden Globes. Mm. And Rachel won and the show won. And yeah. So yeah, we were already an award winning show by the time we got to the castles, but not the Emmys, which is, of course, the big, uh, mm -hmm. for any, mm -hmm. for any television effort. So yeah. yeah, yeah. That was part of the weird underlying sense of, oh my God, I, you know, the gratitude that you talked about and the sense of, you know, when you're a part of something special, you know, when you read the script, you know, when you're on the set in the hands of the director, you know, when you're with the other actors and there's no egos bent out of shape, driven by ultimately insecurities, and then those stupid award things come up. Mm -hmm. It's the kind of thing where they are absolutely meaningless until some of them fall into your lap and then <laughs> meaning is attached. You know, they're sure, still meaningless sure. in the grand scheme of things. But yeah, 20 Emmys and No, they they they're meaning they're meaningful. They're meaningful in every way. And well, the only place that they're not meaningful is in the sense of competition with other great shows because you can't compare apples and oranges and there is a certain amount of popularity contest. On the other hand, it's recognition by your peers and uh, that a show is great. The winning and losing of them is maybe not as um, relevant, except, except that the network executives pay attention to it. It affects how much money they're going to give a show and how sure. much room they're going to give a show to grow. So they're very, very important. Yeah. To everybody. Well, that was the other weird aspect of this show. You know, it was launched on Amazon, which hadn't had a big hit. And in fact, none of its shows had even garnered a nomination. So, yeah, these crazy numbers of eyeballs and then these accolades and then, yeah. And it was all counterintuitive. Exactly. In the sense that, no, 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 you're not going to do a period show and it's yeah. going to be about this Jewish female comic and how she survived. We did, we saw Mad Men already. We know how tough it was for women. Could we get on with things now? Yeah. And, and it, it, it's yeah. all counterintuitive. It shouldn't have happened. Whatever yeah. happened between Amy and Dan and the network executives who were smart enough to go, this is really special yeah. and we're going to give this. I don't know what happens in that situation because except that it's human beings who do the right thing. And for as obviously as much as that happens, there are great, great, great shows out there that have been pitched in rooms just like that mm -hmm. with Netflix, Amazon, and all the streamers and networks that have gone nowhere. Sometimes they've been turned yeah. into novels or they've been turned into plays or movies or the writers haven't given up. And they've said, okay, I'm, I'm just not going to take no for an answer and I'm going to yeah. move on. And we just as those people are not rejected as often as we are as actors on a weekly basis, we have to learn or not learn uh, how to get up when we've been knocked down. And everybody who's an artist has to learn it. Actors more than anybody else, more sure. often than anybody else. But whatever happened for them to create this and the network executives to go against all conventional wisdom 
and do a period show about this Jewish family, these two Jewish families, right. and, and, and make these two Jewish families relevant to so much of America so everybody could identify with it. This show wouldn't be a hit if it was just for the Jews in America. This is obviously the kind of thing that worked for a lot of people who recognized their family. And recognize their family and, to further to your point, not America, the world. I mean, this right, is right, right. the season four got 500 million hours viewed around the world. When we did the mm. press tour for season four, you know, it was in Zoom because of the COVID instead of in person. And they would bring in, you know, different countries. And then there wasn't just one or two outlets for India. There were six. And maybe it's the connection to Bollywood in terms of the visual and the family and the colors. And it's, the just, it's just it's just like, well, what's a truism about everything? Yeah. And it's the same thing when they said, why are you doing that on the cave about Thor being killed by that bear? You know, um, it's not going to play to the yeah. cave over there. And they go, no, no, they, they, they've had people die because of bears, too. That's right. It'll play. How about how about the character of Susie showing up with the plunger? <laughs> I mean, I forgot. I don't know how, just because time. Just what a and again, let's go back to the writer's room. We gotta get Susie there. We can't just spend three episodes in the Catskills without her. She's looking well, after what's, her. What's wonderful about that is that that plunger became a symbol for her desperation to matter. And to she knows she's got she's hanging on to some talent to a talent here and not only does she know it she's recognized it and she's recognized the talent and somewhere in her she knows she can nurture that talent and make it better and bring it to the world but no one is giving her the time of day and the plunger is her going i'm not giving up i'm not going to let go it's a singular prop that says of the character i am willing to do anything to do anything whatever it takes Whatever it this takes. plunger represents maybe the lower end of what I'm willing to do. I mean, of all the props, you know, the thing that goes in the toilet to make it work through the garbage that was left behind. I mean, this is, you know, it's the old joke about the guy cleaning up after the elephants in the circus. I can't believe this is what you do for a living. What do you mean? And quit show business? You yeah. know, that's this is what that's happened. the point, isn't it? Well, look, yeah, obviously, Amy and Dan have been here. Their entire they've carried lives. the plunger, yeah, yeah, they've carried plunger in love with the people that carry plungers, and they're in love with all of the stuff that goes around. What and give up showbiz? They're in love with all all of it, mm -hmm. and their experiences have been translated yep. into these characters. What's really interesting is that, as conventional wisdom says in Hollywood, please don't do inside baseball. What do you mean? Please don't do a show about showbiz. Nobody cares about showbiz. And you go, what are you, out of your fucking mind? The entire world is in love with Hollywood. Yeah. The entire world wants to know on a daily basis. There are how many fan magazines in 1908? Mm. I mean, of course, Inside Baseball will play if it's about people. Right. And people and family. relate. And family. And if you're, you're going to relate to. I also the love their ability success. to show every facet of quote-unquote, the Jew. And when Zach <laughs> Levi shows up to play Dr. Benjamin at the end of this episode in an effort to fix Midge up with someone, not just physically commanding, which is beautifully in the last shot of the episode with him standing next to Michael Zegan, the poor bastard, who he didn't <laughs> realize was so tiny until he <laughs> stood next to Shazam. Yeah. You know, again, that complete canvas that they continue to expand and paint and expand and paint. And here they bring in a yet another version of a Jew who is a threat to the throne of the character of Joel. Well, let's, talk, let, let's talk about something more controversial for a second. Sure. Have you heard of this phrase, Jew face? Uh, probably. So what it means is non-Jewish actors playing Jewish roles. As a, like blackface is Jewface, and there has been a controversy about. I don't subscribe. It, in case neither do I. Yeah. Well, neither do I. And for good, and this is why I wanted to talk about what's important about this. There is this phrase called cultural appropriation, and although there is makes some sense in some circumstances, there, there are going been to be examples where, of course, of, it makes of, sense. legitimate. There's no Tony Shalhoub playing Abe Weissman if we're going to play that game. No, but here's the point that I want to make about why it's so wonderful. Art can be 
actually described as cultural appropriation. And one of the things that happens when actors who didn't grow up Jewish, and when you and I play, occasionally we play characters who aren't Jewish, but when anybody plays anything that they aren't in yeah. life, it's what it acting. does, it's called acting. But what is that about? It, it's, it's about showing our common humanity mm. through our appropriation of other people walking a mile in somebody else's shoes. There you go. And I also would like to put this to rest as if if anybody's got any kind of legitimacy in this area, it's me as a child of Holocaust survivors. And I can tell you that I'm thrilled that that family of Abe and Rose and Mitch is acted by actors who get it. And I don't think about it for a second. All I care about is that it's honest human beings and that I recognize my family in all of the families, in both families there. Right, right. Whether or not one family is all Jewish actors, which they are, and the other one isn't, at least the actors. And it doesn't matter a damn, because what the actors are good enough to do is to catch the humanity in the, in the characters and their specificity of how they grew up. And that's the trick. You know, that's a great word. The word for art in German is Kunst. Kunst and Kunst is also a Kunstler is a is a trickster and the word mm. for art is trick and the trick the trick is to create that believability whether or not you grew up in it and that's a wonderful thing that happens in this show that has had some controversy from some you know there's been some objections about that not from me who's a part of it and I celebrate the fact that that is the case in this show well the other trick is that i was able to bring you to this podcast <laughs> so that you could share all this wonderments and insights and not to undermine in any way shape or form your last point because it is again very well articulated from a position of authority within the community uh, within, you know, being a child of Holocaust survivors. So I thank you for that. I don't yeah. mean to undermine it at all when I no, no, no. step us aside so that I can thank you for making time so that we could discuss the wonderful world of Maisel. Pleasure. And please come back so that we yeah. can talk about the return. In season four, yeah. Of Polly, honestly and truly. And uh, yeah, just uh, that last moment again where... Dr. Benjamin and Joel, for the audience, you know, you talked about the gift to the audience. So the audience knows who these two characters are. They don't know who each other is. Dr. Benjamin is just bumming a light, I think, for his cigarette. Mm -hmm. And they're discussing their need to be away from the masses below watching the fireworks. And then to switch the camera angle from on them to behind them looking out. Mm. And that's where we see the physical difference mm. between them as they're gazing out into the magic and wonderment of the setting. Again, I just think it's all these specific choices in the storytelling. They do not miss a beat. Mm. And, uh, and David Mullen's cinematography, goodness gracious. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. And how about your fitting with Donna? Give me a couple of minutes of uh, your experience of the fitting, because that's, you know, they build these clothes. They're not uh, from Western costume out in Hollywood. No, 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 no. no. We we talk about them just, I'm sure, like, we, you, usually, if you're a regular on a show, there's a meeting with the costume designer and you discuss your whole wardrobe and you're a part of it. As a guest actor, you very rarely are. Almost mm -hmm. never. Almost never. There isn't time for it. Mm -hmm. No, uh, before I got on set, I got phone calls, and uh, it was pre-Zoom call stuff. So I got right. a phone call saying, what do you see? Uh, you're asking me, oh, uh, really, I hadn't thought of it. What, what do you guys think? And, well, we're looking at these pastel colors, and we were looking at, and I said, this all sounds wonderful. He needs a hat, and, uh, and I think he should sweat. You know, he's he, he's uh, overweight and he's in the Catskills and he's got these two big problems to deal with. He's got Abe's assistant is gone and he's got to tell her she's got to be sash girl. And so what's the thing? Get me a handkerchief. Honest to God, get yeah. me a handkerchief and, and let's talk about it. So, yeah, part of that is about the love of actors. And that comes from the top. Mm -hmm. You're not going to get that. Unless it already is starting with the showrunners, or in the case of a movie, the, the director of the show from right. a Barry Levinson or whoever, and it's going to come, it's going to trickle down yeah. to all the departments 
to have respect for the artists that you're working with and have them contribute sure. to it. So right from the very, now that you mentioned it, I hadn't even thought of it. Now that you mentioned a very important thing that you just brought up, because even before I got there, I was made to feel that my contributions mattered. Yep. That my thinking, that my thoughts matter. And by the way, not made to feel, they did matter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, they did matter. Yeah. No, no one, one was, was making an effort to no. welcome you with these genuine inquiries, right? No, it was part this of the is culture. Our process. Part of, that's Welcome. the culture of that show. And other people should learn from it. There are people who are going to be listening to your podcast because it's you, is that you get insights from people that you, you don't have time for other than on a podcast. And so what happens is that other artists get to hear this, writers, uh, prospective showrunners. There's probably somebody listening to this right now is 15 years old who may end up, you know, 15 years from now or 25 years from now creating an award-winning television series and partly because they're hearing about what goes into making one. Right. Well said. Again, well said. <laughs> Listen, Solly, I love you madly. Great health and as much you happiness too. as you can squeeze. Please. Yeah. yeah. Let's work together somehow again. Looking forward to that. All right. Yes, please. And thank you. How about that for a Saul Rubinek? Didn't realize there were so many things to talk about. Did you? Well, I didn't. He is one of the ever-expanding minds that I love talking to, to expand my own damn brain, because, my lord. His nickname is The Professor. Write to me, let me know what you think about our conversation or any aspect. My Mrs. Maislepod at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. In fact, why don't we open up the mailbag? How about that? Yeah, let's do that now. Yes, today's fan mail question comes from Art, who wrote, Kevin, always a good way to start. Somebody must have asked this question before, but how many takes were there of the, quote, baseball hitting, end quote, scene with Joel and his pal? I've done something similar by tossing a ball in the air and hitting fungos. It's so fun. But to have two guys do it with no misses and what looks like they both really tag the balls really well. Also, how much did they practice for that scene and did they both play baseball in high school or at least Little League? Love the podcast and the show as a nice Jewish kid from Columbus, Ohio with family in New York. Where else? Be well. Keep up the good work. Art from Scottsdale, Arizona. Well, thank you, Art, very much. And now, here to answer your question, is Joel Johnstone. Art, Joel Johnstone here. Haven't heard from you in a long time. I love filming and rehearsing the baseball scene. Amy had spoken to Zegan and I before she wrote it and just asked if that was something we could do. We both thought, yeah, we both played baseball, Little League. I played some in high school, you know, so so we realized what we were getting into. What we didn't realize was that the, the swings and, and thwacks of the baseball, if you will, were intentionally written in surgically to every single line, either on a word or in between words to be repeated every single take. So Zegan and I quickly realized, yeah, this is not something we can just wing on the day. We got to rehearse it. The AD department set us up with a batting cage the day before. Then we showed up on the day and it got exponentially more challenging. Michael and I were rehearsing it with Amy and the camera department, and there was a there was a crane that was going to do a big wide shot of us for coverage, and we heard Amy whisper to somebody, I don't think we're going to need the crane. And we turned to Amy and we said, Amy, are you, are you shooting this as a wonder? And in the most loving, charming, terrifying way, she just looked at us, smiled and shrugged her shoulders, and Zegan and I just looked at each other and said, Holy shit, this scene is going to be one long take. Then once we started hitting live balls, we quickly realized we're going to kill Conky, our camera operator. So they put a plexiglass shield in front of him and some of the crew that come around right in front of us. Even then with Nerf balls, hard balls, it didn't matter. It was still too hard because they were so close. So we had to swing and intentionally miss. At this point, that was a big challenge because we were just so accustomed to hitting the baseball and then saying the line. And it kind of threw us when we would intentionally swing and miss. So to answer your question, we did miss balls mostly on purpose. They had to digitally fix those in post-production. And I'm going to guesstimate we did 15 takes Maybe as many as 20, if you count in all the mess-ups and start-overs. So I hope that answered all your questions, and thank you for listening, and thank you for watching, Art. 
Thank you, Joel Johnstone, and thank you, Art, for your wonderful question. And thank you to the rest of you who are writing in your questions and comments to mymrsmazelpod at gmail.com. That is our show for today. Please tell everyone you've ever met. Please rate and review. How do you uh, listen to the show? Let us know, please. And um, yeah, until next episode, please be kind to each other. And I will, of course, see you in my dream. Okay, closing credits time. My Mrs. Maisel pod was created by me, your host, Kevin Pollack, research writer, producer, Jamie Fox, and our engineer, recording, post-production producer genius is Ken Plume. My Mrs. Maisel pod is brought to you by the fine folks at Q Code. Q Code. Sounds like something, doesn't it? Oh, lastly, you should know... I'm told by legal to make this crystal clear that my Mrs. Maisel pod was not sanctioned in any way, shape, or form by Amazon Prime, nor the show's creators Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino, although I feel the need to mention I did get their blessing. Okay, good. That should save me some legal fees. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale. It's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now.